Thanks for joining us. It's uh, Andy Wilson here from uh, Travel in the Evening. And I've got my friend uh, Conor Kostick with me again today. And hopefully we're going to talk about um, an essay he recently published, which I also uh, shared a publication on the Travel in the Evening, about eco-socialism as a movement among uh, socialists and an analysis of the environment and man's relationship to the environment. So Connor's written quite a, a critical essay about that, um, and uh, I wanted him to come on the, on the podcast today and just tell us about it and a little bit about it. So I thought I think I'll start by asking him, you know, why he wanted to um, uh, engage with uh, socialists over this argument. That's a really important question because when you look at the finished essay, it, you would be forgiven for reading backwards from uh, the idea that I, I was out to, um, you know, knock some um, blows to the ankles of an edifice and try and bring it down. And that was always my motive because it is very polemical. Um, and that's not what happened. So what happened was I began to feel uneasy about eco-socialism maybe as far back as a year ago because... It's a label that I was close to using with regard to my own politics because, broadly speaking, I'm a socialist um, and certainly a revolutionary and certainly someone concerned about the environment, relatively recently won over to animal rights. So, I, you know, eco-socialism sounded very much like the kind of label that would apply to me, but I began to feel uneasy about it. First of all, because I encountered it in the form of the global eco-socialist network which was just a red flag to me because I could see it was the kind of operation that uh, some Trotskyist groups get into which is where they set up a broad front on a popular issue but it's not a genuine united campaign of activists with equal voices uh, they keep control of it the organizational heart of it and they keep it on a certain political line. And I've, I've seen this done an awful lot. And the, I believe the global eco-socialist network to be of this type. Now, that didn't trouble me too much because anyone can use the label and you can't hold it against other eco-socialists that someone else has, has gone and tried to, you know, set out that stall in that space. So fine, that was okay. But um, I... You and I were talking about uh, something related, and I said, you know what, I'm really going to have to learn more about this. So I started reading more, and then someone recommended, in, they thought I'd like it, this book by um, Sato, um, Marx and the Anthropocene. And that just made me furious. So the fury that I felt reading this book is channeled into an essay is eco-socialism a fraud? Um, because that book, and I hope to explain why in the course of this podcast, is fraudulent. Okay, so um, at one point uh, you were saying, you know, how annoyed you were by these eco-socialists, but I thought, I think um, 
it might be a, point, a good point to pause and just ask you to to just clarify what it is about uh, the eco-socialists uh, that you object to, because um, obviously the fact that socialists are beginning to talk in more of a green voice and address ecological concerns, I assume, is a, is a good thing in, in itself. So, yeah, find a question back at you. What, what is it about their posture that you think is a problem? Um, right. That's a good question. And when I think of individuals, I'm sort of not angry at all. I think there there are many sincere people who would apply the label eco-socialism to themselves. But when I'm thinking of um, some organizations I'm familiar with, um, Socialist Workers Network, who form the big component in People Will Profit, to a lesser extent, a group called RISE, who come out of um, uh, a sort of uh, militant tradition, Socialist Party tradition. When I think of those organizations, that's where I think there's a problem with eco-socialism. And what I discovered was that the roots of the problem are in Stalinism, but we'll we'll get on to that. But, but you know, you wanted to know what was my issue. Well, my issue is that uh, it's insincere. So... It's the left for decades has said it has the answers to exploitation and injustice. It has the answers to racism. It has the answers to uh, the oppression of women. The left has the answers to everything. Um, and what it felt like to me was that the they've tagged on the environment, having come to a realization this is this is an important concern, but they've tagged it on in an insincere and shallow fashion. And that's the the rub. So I I'm on the left, right? So I'm it's a self-criticism. I'm not um I'm not, you know, I, I'm within the left. I'm making this argument that we have to do better. So it's not like from the outside saying so the left is rubbish. We I'm saying we are rubbish. We have to do better. We have to do lots better on the environment. Way, way better. And this is a sort of cattle prod uh to to in that direction. And you can't just come along to a campaign and say socialism's the answer. You know, it's just far too shallow and it, that's such a weakness of the left. You have to be humble and, I suppose, organic or you have to connect to the campaign, to the people who are experiencing the oppression and organising against it in, in, a, in, a, in a way that's genuinely... Um, thoughtful and empathetic and willing to adjust your preconceptions in the light of their experience and and uh, you know you idea in the ideal situation you get a kind of dialogue where you're bringing some of your experience um often i find in ecological areas for example there's a bit of a weakness when it comes to class amongst the activists so some of the ecologists who are, who are really powerful writers who've got really strong insights are not rooted in working class experiences and therefore underestimate or don't have the tools for connecting what they're seeing with with working class movements with trade unions and things like this so so i think we the left can bring a lot to the movement but it has to it has to have a diff, different relationship to this sort of um oh yeah we're eco-socialists you know and marx had all the answers to do with ecology so you know we've got all the answers um, so, you know, vote for us, join us. 
and we'll solve the problems of the planet. That's that's what's uh, shallow. That's what my my issue is. Yes, it seems to me it's interesting that um, there's that you have eco-socialism that socialists are addressing the question of the ecology, which is which is great in and of itself. But it's also surprising uh, what needs at least to be put into an historical context in which you know it's understood that for a long time the the left groups didn't you know they they were very critical of the green movement and often completely dismissed ecological questions, whatever sort of hippie matters, and nothing to do with the labor movement. So they've come uh, quite a long way, yeah. you know, since that time. So, you know, part of me would think, you know, we should welcome that. And, you know, we should uh, just welcome the fact that they've made any movement at all. And, you know, if you want to be generous, just overlook their failings in the past. But I understand that, you know, this goes beyond criticizing them for being late to the party, that you also have significant criticisms to make in terms of the theory that they've adopted. I mean, I think, there's two aspects to that that I'd like to ask you about both of them. First, what is that theory, briefly? You know, what do they think is unique about that theory? And uh, secondly, you know, what do you make of it and its implications? Yeah, well, yes, it's good that the left is engaged with this topic. Um, we've got something very, very important to offer, which is that um, I think the working class movement is going to be providing the muscle for revolutionary change and the left has much more experience in trade unions in rooting in in working class communities than the, the the green movement typically is a bit more middle class but 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 that's a kind of hypothetical positive in reality the way i see the left playing out is in fact they could be harmful um, unless I say they, we, I'm part of the left. Unless we, unless we get our act together and approach the environmental issues in the right manner, what we're likely to end up doing is bringing back energy that emerges for change and unfortunately channeling it in a direction that won't work, that won't transform this planet in the way we need to, that'll, that'll channel it back into failed models such as there's a Stalinist uh, attempt to um, elbow room, get some elbow room inside of this space. Uh, there's also a kind of left reformist attempt to, you know, get the uh, energy around ecology, channel that back into parliaments. And then there's a smaller sort of uh, Trotskyist um, semi-revolutionary tradition, which has its own weaknesses, its, its, its own desire to co-opt this energy uh, for party building so in you know in theory the left has a very important part to play in practice in order for us to play it properly we need to have um, a different relationship to the environmental campaigners than we currently have and also a different theoretical model uh, because the model that says that Marx had it right all along is fraudulent Okay, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can see that a bit late to the game and that. I suppose I want to ask you, in your essay, you drill down into what you basically present as this theoretical uh, structure they've come up with to justify the view 
that Marx had this particularly, you know, unique um, insight into the nature of our, our well, our relationship with nature, um, and it's based on some idea of the social and natural metabolisms or something like this. But I wonder if you could explain for us what that idea is, um, what its significance is, and, and and talk about you know the kind of who supports that view. So this was my my big discovery, uh, and it, and it came as a I assumed that all this talk uh, about Marx having a powerful ecological critique um, of what capitalism does to the environment, I, I assumed that was all valid, you know. And uh, so when I delved into the, what is eco-socialism, with the intention of learning more, it was not uh, with the intention of, of saying that um, it's fraudulent. Far from it. <laughs> the... The, the my my sort of tone of of uh, indignation is a reflection of my own experience as I as I read into it I could not believe what I was reading because I made an earnest attempt to understand what was out there and it was like it must be like the kid in the emperor's new clothes you know so for twenty years since um, John Bellamy Foster really developed the idea the left has uh, been chorusing an argument that the Marx had a concept of metabolic rift and that this rift between the social metabolism and natural metabolism created by capitalism in a specific way which I'm going to mention this rift is what we're experiencing as the crisis of uh, the environment so good old Marx anticipated the dis this, the rift is a good word, you know, a, a real rupture, a real disjoint uh, tear between what it is to live as humans in a healthy relationship to the environment and, and a ruinous one. So metabolic rift, great concept, okay. So it's there in Marx, is it? Well, hang on. <laughs> no, it's not. Because what happens was, I'm reading this book, I say, okay, this this is interesting. And I wonder what Marx means exactly by this. Now, they, they argue, uh, Bellamy Foster and then subsequent writers tease it out, and, and including this book that I was really focused on, Saito, that um, the rupture, the rift, has its origins and its dynamic in the specific way that capitalism works, which is that capitalism circulates on the basis of expanding exchange value. So in Marx's terminology... A commodity has uh, a value that's made up of, um, well, it's, it's simultaneously a useful thing, so it has a useful value, but it also has an exchange value, and that's what matters to the capitalist. So, yes, they, 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 they don't always sell useful things, but they try and sell useful things. But what matters to them is what they can realize, what the value of the thing is in terms of some sort of abstract notion of value. Um, socially necessary labor time, um, to use Marx's term, and the law of value kind of shapes capitalism by uh, uh, it's the kind of um, force field that all capitalists are being organized by because they're, they're producing commodities based on this exchange value. So you've got this runaway exchange value, and this is in contrast to use values. And this is what is creating the the rupture 
Well, that's interesting, but I had two immediate thoughts. And I, I noticed that when I was discussing this with you, I was reading the book and sort of pasting bits of it to you. You had exactly the same thought as me. Hang on a second. If the rupture between humanity and nature is based on a runaway expansion of exchange value, which sounds kind of plausible, what happened before capitalism? Are you dating the origin of the rupture to whatever, let's say, 1400-ish? Uh, and it's, it's, that's when the problems come in. Because clearly that's not going to fit the historical facts. We know that from 500 BC, the um, Abyss Assyrian rulers were, were carving up the trees of the Lebanon to make ships. So the, all those cedar trees were, were devastated. We know that the monoculture uh, in terms of uh, uh, agriculture was, was well into BC periods, leading to desertification, um, diseases, episodics, in other words, animal uh, diseases. So we, you know, the rupture, insofar as it's happened and it's a good model to view the world, the rupture happened a long, long time ago. Um, and we, you know, we're, uh, Morton, Timothy Morton has a, uh, a phrase, the, um, the severing. And he says the severing really began with Neolithic people, the first farmers. As soon as you start to treat nature as an object for human um, use, including animals, then you create a logic that ultimately is being played out now. Capitalism plays it out at extraordinary speed. It's like, you know, the, this pursuit of exchange values, if, if that's a valid concept, you, you might sim more simply say chasing after profits. If that's like putting your foot on the accelerator and whoosh, you know, really, really doubling down, tripling down, exponentially moving down the agri-logistic path. But the processes were in place earlier, which means that the saying that it's all about what Marx said, that's the, this is the first point, I've got two points. Saying that it's all about this idea, Marx, does not fit history. So it's an it's a incorrect model. There has to be something as well as the exchange value that's going on. And then the other thing is, this is my second point, when I went to look up this famous theory of metabolic rift, um, which everybody, without exception on the left, claims is in Marx, I couldn't find it. I could not find it. There is not one place in the entire collected works of Marx where he talks about metabolic rift those two, that phrase. There is a sentence, there's one sentence in the whole of his collected works, plus his recently published notebooks, where the word metabolic and the word rift occur in the same sentence. So it's not there. I mean, by all means, you can create a theory of metabolic rift that, say, is inspired by Marx's writings. You cannot claim in the same way that you can claim Marx had a theory of history to do with the force and race of production, which he did, you can claim Marx had a theory that capitalism would go into crisis because of the falling rate of profit, which he did. You cannot claim that he had a theory of ecology based on the concept of metabolic rift because he didn't. So what I'm getting from you, Connor, is that, you know, 
these uh, the, the Marxist theoreticians have, have, have invented this concept of metabolic rift, uh, uh, generated it out of Marx and, and conjured up this theory. Um, I'd like to know a couple of things about that, what the implications of that theory are, because you mentioned in your essay that it's connected with their kind of alliances internationally. So they've been supporting China and things like that. Some theories somehow connect with that. But the other thing I wanted to ask, which I'd like you to start with, is, okay, so they've they've invented this bit of Marx in order to, to build this theory, but what could they have leaned on in Marx? What is there in Marx that is of direct relevance to the question of you know climate um, emergency, climate warming? Okay, I'll, I'll focus on that second question um, first, because chronologically it makes more sense, but I, I, they're both important. So... So the more I looked into Marx, um, the more I realized that really there's not a lot to build an ecological theory. So metabolic rift isn't there in Marx. You could make up a theory of metabolic rift and you could say it's to do with exchange values um, and their self-expansion and so on. And that's fine. That's what they've done. But as I said earlier, there was a problem historically with applying that theory. There's also political implications that uh, I'm going to come to. But... It's not in Marx. So what what are we left in Marx? And really not a lot. No more, probably even a bit less than you would get by asking the same question of other mid-19th century thinkers. So if you said, is there anything in Freud that will help us with the environment? Well, yes, but not anything to do with global warming. Is there anything in Darwin? Well, probably a little bit more, actually. But still, um, you don't expect these thinkers to be uh, clear on the specifics of the way in which our crisis is unfolding. And a good example of that would be Marx and his writings on the soil. You know, a lot of the left say, look, Marx is, it, there's an implicit environmentalism in Marx when he writes about the soil because he writes about how capitalism is destructive towards the soil. And we could sort of read out from that uh, capitalism being destructive to all sorts of features of society that are ecological. And yes, you can. But let's look at that example in, properly. Marx was taking notes on a, a book about the uh, soil and how it was being degraded. And he said, ultimately, he said, it's large-scale private property that's causing this. And he anticipated that over time, this would be a major problem. Now, that's not a problem we face. The problem with soil is completely different because after Marx's death, chemists discovered a way to capture nitrogen and put it back in the soil. So what we've got is instead a deflection of the problem into new areas that, that are postmarks. Global warming is contributed to massively by this uh, industrialized uh, chemical process, but also the destruction of our rivers and the ocean. Our rivers are absolutely uh, devastated by the runoff of the chemicals that are being put into the soil so that not only is everything dying, but you're getting these flourishing of, uh, of algal growths that are just uh, suffocating everything underneath them. And you're getting huge areas of the ocean that are now without sufficient oxygen for life because of the runoff of chemicals. So, the you know, as a guide to practice, it, it doesn't work to look to Marx. We have to look to new uh, researchers who are, who are really getting to grips with why these processes are happening, why they're so destructive, what we have to do to stop them, what kind of legislation we need, what kind of civil disobedience do we need. It 
it's not Marx. <laughs> you won't get it from Marx. And we shouldn't expect it to. You know, I don't see this as a, as a devastating blow to Marxism. It's, it's a, kind of natural enough that um, he didn't live long enough to see these processes. Now, you might argue, well, well what about at a deeper level? Uh, is there in some way, you know, like treating him like a, a figure like Aristotle, say, could we get some sort of core fundamental philosophy that would guide us in terms of ecological crisis? But again, I, I, I'm sorry. I, no, he's a bit disappointing in this area. This is not one of his strengths, and let's not pretend otherwise. Um, when he came to write about global warming, for example, well, he didn't write about global warming, but he did address the question of burning coal, and he got it completely wrong. Um, he was he was explaining to his readers of Capital how the value of a commodity can be transferred as the commodity changes form, and he explained that it basically it passes on its exchange value, and indeed it could even increase it if if human labour adds surplus value to it. So he's, he's He's got a passage like this. And during that passage, he argues that burning coal and oil has no consequence. This is this is exact exact phrase. He says in Capital 1.8, the coal burnt under the boiler vanishes without leaving a trace. So too the tallow with which the axles of the wheels are greased. So he doesn't he's the reason he's saying that is because they don't pass their value on into the uh, exchange value of the commodity. But the very fact that it wouldn't occur to him <laughs> that there was a, that there was any problem with coal burning that's that's fine because he's writing in whatever 1866 or something so you know only someone who treats him as a sort of semi-divine figure and who has lost the capacity for independent thought unless they can safely stand within the shadow of marx would have a problem with marx not getting this right um, but anyway, look, that's pretty clear. We got him wrong. Okay. The second area where Marx is out of date is in regard to animal rights. Um, we can see that he had a, a Cartesian understanding of, of animals and humans from the statement in Capital, which is 1.7. A spider conducts operations that resemble those of a weaver, and a bee puts to shame many an architect in the construction of her cells but what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of bees is this that the architect raises his structure in imagination before he erects it in reality so this is this is a model of um, nature and humans that separates humans on the grounds that we have this special kind of a mind and and it's a model that's hopelessly out of date um you know, there's plenty of experiments that show that other creatures do raise in their imaginations the world around them before acting on it. And in fact, the evolutionary branch that allows for the kind of mind that can do this goes back hundreds of millions of years before we diverge from birds, because birds can do this, and, and tests have been done to demonstrate that ravens can do this in particular, a very smart bird, which I know you've an interest in because they're sort of mythical qualities. Um, but um, so, you know, he's, he is wrong. And there's plenty, there's very interesting experiments with bees showing how bees are playful, um, how they learn from one another, they communicate. There's a interesting experiment where sort of slightly unethically, but not too harmfully, 
um, the experimenter attacks a bee in a, in, in a plant with a plastic spider, causing the bee to flee in alarm, and then measures the rates at which bees land on that flower, and the whole nest slows down. They approach that flower with caution. The, 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 the one who had the experience has communicated it to the hive. And not only that, they noticed that that particular individual had a kind of post-traumatic stress because they approached all flowers more slowly than they had been uh, before the incident. So there's, there's, uh, there's other kinds of mind as well. You know, Marx's definition there of what counts for the mind is is very anthropocentric. It's it's very human orientated. But a, another evolutionary branch has, has generated different kinds of minds, such as that of the octopus. I don't think anybody argues the octopus isn't sentient, but they have a, diff, a dispersed kind of mind that, that goes all along their tentacles. And their method of thinking is not so much the sort of contemplation and then action, but manipulation and action. So they, they think by grasping objects in the tentacles and manipulating them. So, you know, he's hopelessly out of date on that, but that's okay. Again, it's not to argue that Marxism, therefore, is is flawed. It's not to argue that Marx, and especially his theory of, of class struggle and socialist revolution, doesn't have a lot to offer a way out for humanity. Um, but it is to argue that the there's a type of brand of left thought that um, is using the label eco-socialism and is fraudulently attempting to make the case that Marx has all the answers to the environmental challenge and therefore, you know, join us is, is the sort of crude bottom line of it. So, um, and I just wanted to make one more point about animal rights. Probably a lot of people listening to podcasts aren't yet uh, champions of animal rights. Um, hopefully many of you are. And I just say that I think this has become, and for, you know, I'm late to this argument, so I'm not um, trying to be holier than thou, but I think we have to adopt animal rights that those of us on the left, and for two two reasons. One is an ethical one. If these other beings are sentient, then there is absolutely no excuse for farming them, for, for imprisoning them, uh, torturing them, eating them. I mean, there really isn't. But Let's put that aside, you know, if, which people somehow manage to do, and just look at the practical side of it. It's animal farming, above all, which is wrecking the planet. It's, you know, people will be familiar with the statistic that 70% of species have been uh, eliminated, have been destroyed, have gone extinct since 1970. Above all, it's animal farming that's driving that, because what's happening is that the to the the growth in the cattle herd, pig uh, population, the chicken population, and so on, is not uh, happening on open fields in an organic way where these animals are spread, dispersed, and living fairly natural lives. No, no, it's not like that at all. They're in stalls and they're being given fodder, and it's the fodder, the growth of the fodder, that is absolutely unsustainable. If everybody in the world was to have a western diet we would need another planet the size of earth simply to grow the soya fodder so that's that's what's caused the amazon to be cut down that's what's caused the wild of planet earth to become 
these huge stretches of, of farmed land. It's the drive to produce soya, especially, but other crops as fodder for animals. It's, it is unsustainable. So even if you don't accept the, the sort of ethical argument or, or can somehow put that aside, um, practically speaking, if we are to save the planet, we have to stop farming animals. Um, you know, it, that expansion is, is what's going to absolutely uh, push us into the abyss. Okay, Connor, um, I think there's a, some small risk. You might be perceived as being even more sectarian than I, I know you are. Um, <laughs> but um, because you, you're criticising this sort of trend among uh, on the left, but I don't think you've made it sufficiently clear that it's, uh, it's actually a sort of well-defined group that have uh, adopted this kind of socialist, uh, eco-socialist analysis. So perhaps if you just say something about, about them to differentiate them from the other Marxists and just tell us a bit about how they grouped and uh, what the politics of it all are. Yeah, that, that's fair um, because, uh, you know, it is it is a provocative piece. It's called is Eco-Socialism is a Fraud? And um, many eco-socialists are absolutely not fraudulent and very sincere. So, yes, uh, my argument is, is focused on particular evolution of the term and and the origination of the term. I mean, you know, the John Bellamy Foster and the Monthly Review Group developed the concept of the metabolic rift and eco-socialism. So that's the group that I'm interested in. That I, I you know, I was genuinely surprised um, about my discoveries around this politics. Um, so that's what motivated me to write, and I'm absolutely sure. And know that there are Marxists who have, you know, really uh, powerful critiques of the system, uh, but they don't use the metabolic uh, uh, rift argument. And so that's my focus. It's mainly on the monthly review group. And then those who have uncritically joined the chorus around this because, and they've, they've suspended their critical faculties in a way that I don't think they would have done 20 years ago. Because it suits them to believe that the answers are all in Marx, uh, so they they haven't really looked too deeply into the question. And I think that some of the people who consider themselves eco-socialists and are referring to metabolic rift will be surprised that you know about the history of this concept and really what the political motivation behind it is. Because I think what lies behind the concept is is a form of Stalinism, and and in particular an enthusiasm for China. Because what you can do is, if you define the model by which the world is suffering a terrible rupture as a dichotomy between exchange values and the rampant pursuit of exchange values and the use value of a commodity, if that's your definition of where the rupture is coming from, which is the monthly review definition, what it allows you to do is say, well, China doesn't have an untrammeled um, free market pursuit of exchange value for exchange value's sake. It's not doing that. It has The state has a responsible role that ameliorates this. So their critique, the monthly review critique, is really focused on Western multinationals. And you can see this because John Bellamy Foster, the founder 
of ecosocialism and metabolic rift is incredibly positive about Xi Jinping. He'd often quote him as being, you know, as China's leader, as being very positive on the environment and how how well China is doing. And of course, this is nonsense. You know, as soon as ecosocialism aligns itself geopolitically with China or Russia, because because monthly reviews say that the absolutely awful environmental catastrophe that was the blowing up of the Kakovka Dam, they say that wasn't Russia that did that, that was Ukraine. They they say it's all about, they see the current war as all about NATO and, and not the fault of Russia. So they're apologists. They're apologists for, for China and Russia. And as soon as you take that path and narrow down your ecology into taking sides in, in this kind of way, well, you're lost. It's hopeless. If we're to get out of the mess we're in, we have to transform the whole planet. It seems really obvious to me. You can't, you can't back one, any one of these groups of rulers and say, okay, by, by, let's, let's put our eggs in the Chinese basket and that's going to save the planet. It's not. It's not. They're as determined to um, catch up with the West uh, and therefore, you know, it's going to contribute to global warming massively. It's, it's, it's not going to transform the, 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 the world the way we need to transform the world. So once you realize that there is this political positioning going on behind the talk of ecology, then I think you can see it's not sectarian to challenge it. Far from it. And if anything, I'm sort of goading the people who used to be quite critical of China and Russia, the sort of IS tradition, the, even the socialist party tradition, the militant tradition. I'm sort of goading them to say, come on, look, look at where this is. politics is leading you. You need to get out of this. And just to reiterate a point I think I made earlier, that the it, it, even if you adopt it in a sort of non-geopolitical way. So you say, okay, I, I can see what you're saying about monthly review, and I, and I don't agree about the China and the Russia thing, but I'm still going to keep the metal, metabolic rift idea and the exchange value idea. Even then, I'd say you're falling short of what's needed because you're limiting your understanding of what's gone wrong to capitalism. But capitalism is accelerating processes that began a lot earlier, and you need a more fundamental critique of how humanity has arrived at this position in order to start to imagine a world where we're doing things differently and we actually get ourselves out of this jam. Thanks for that, Connor. Um, I have to say that, I mean, while I'm sure that you're, the kind of critique that you've made of this trend is, is necessary, I think you're a lot more sanguine than I am about the prospects for Marxism's petition for to come to terms with uh, climate change, because it seems to me that it's at its roots an anti-capitalist movement. It wants to abolish capitalism, but abolishing capitalism in and of itself won't get rid of the problems that we have. I thought it was very noticeable in some of the debates around your essay that we published. Um, that you know, some of the socialists were saying that, well, you know, you've got a really good point, you know, animal rights, that kind of thing. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, for the long-term future. You know, right here and right now, we need to worry about bread and butter issues. And, you know, and if you keep thinking like that, of course, the, these issues are never going to be that fresh. But anyway, I mean, I'm always glad to hear about people like Andreas Mann, you know, Marxists who are, who are trying to demote Marxism to address these issues. Good luck to them. Uh, but I think they're trying to square the circle, ultimately. Anyway, 
Thank you very, very much, Connor, for coming to talk talk about your essay about eco-socialism. And thanks to everyone who's listening in. Thanks for visiting the Traveller in the evening. And I'm sure we'll have something more to say, say to you quite soon. So keep your eye open on the uh, podcast channel. Thanks, everyone.